Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square in London, England, celebrates one of England's greatest naval officers. Lord Horatio Nelson was a man that was brave and inspirational in his leadership of the British Navy. And he, his exploits ran between the periods of the late 1700s and the early 1800s. Now at the base of this column in Trafalgar Square are his famous words. The words that are found in many Boy Scout buildings in the UK. England expects every man to do his duty. We know that those words actually came from a signal that he sent from the flagship HMS Victory in 1805 as the British fleet was getting ready to encounter a combined fleet of the Spanish and the French. Nelson sent these words by signal to every ship, every member of the fleet of the British Navy off the coast of Spain. England expects every man to do his duty. Of course, we know he went on to sound the defeat the French and Spanish Navy. It is not only England that desires that every man and expects that every man should do his duty, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is found in the parable that we read, the parable of the pound. It is called the pound because of the monetary currency or designation, the minor. It could very well have been the parable of the dollar. We want to reflect on this parable today. Very often when we define a parable, the children's definition come to mind. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And to a large extent that is true. But perhaps we may elaborate that a parable is a form of instruction in which true-to-life stories and sayings are used to teach spiritual truths. Of course, Jesus also used parables to conceal spiritual truth from those who were hostile to him. Jesus, therefore, employed the method of the parable because of the vividness with which it communicated truth and impressed truth upon the mind. And so it was his favorite way of teaching by using parables. Now the parable of the pound is very similar, although there are significant distinctions and differences between that of the parable of the talents that we find in Matthew 25 and running from verses 14 to 30. We ought then to note that this parable, the parable of pound, makes some significant distinctions and we're going to try to look at that. In brief then, the parable of the pound tells the story of a man, a property owner, a nobleman, a man of high standing and influence and wealth who 
entrusts his wealth to his servants and goes to a far country in order to receive the title of king so that he may return and rule as king. There were those from his realm who opposed his kingship, but nevertheless he is crowned and he returns to judge his servants in terms of how they had used the pound that he had given to each of them. What I want us to do is to work our way through this parable and to draw out some of the highlights that ought to direct us in our living. I think that as you approach the parable and as you read this parable, the first signal truth that we must consider is that the Lord Jesus Christ entrusts the gift of the gospel to his servants and expects them to render faithful service to him. That is, first of all, the first main argument of this parable. It is interesting that in verse 11, Luke's, Luke connects the parable of the pound to what it preceded. Jesus, of course, had saved this man, Zacchaeus. And we read in verse 11, now as they heard these things, that is the things that Jesus has said, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. In other words, verse 11 is setting out the context in which this parable of the pound has been issued by the Lord. As Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem, he, he, he saves this man, Zacchaeus, and he says in verse 9 and 10 that today salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. He has been saved. Now those who were in Christ's entourage somehow believed that because Zacchaeus, this wicked man, had been saved, that God was going to bring about his kingdom, his rule in Jerusalem. So Jesus tells this parable first and foremost to correct the erroneous expectation that the reign of God was going to be finally unveiled in a political fashion in Jerusalem. Luke refers to the kingdom of God some 40 times. And the kingdom of God, as we have stated as a concept, was at the heart of Jesus' preaching. It refers to the reign of God, the spiritual rule of God over the lives of his people. And Luke tells us that Jesus came preaching in chapter 4, verse 43. He came preaching the kingdom of God. This is why he was sent to proclaim God's spiritual reign. And when Luke describes the reign of God or the kingdom of God, he speaks of it as eternal. You take, for instance, in what he says of the, the messianic kingdom. He says of this Messiah who will come in the line of David, he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This spiritual reign that Christ has come to inaugurate is an eternal reign. Luke also reveals that the kingdom of God, the spiritual reign, not only is it eternal, but it is that which demands everything. And you see that in the pre preceding chapter where the rich man is told that he must sell all that he has and give it away and come follow Christ. You see, to be a part of the kingdom, it demands everything. But it also pays 
a tremendous dividend. And that is found in the previous chapter. Luke also makes it clear that the kingdom of God is manifested and revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, God's kingdom is advanced and revealed in Jesus, in his preaching. People enter the kingdom of God by embracing Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God is present because God is ruling over the lives and hearts of sinners through the ministry of Jesus. But here, Jesus makes clear that the consummation, the final manifestation of God's rule, when Jesus Christ comes in glory and reigns without rivals and without opposition, is yet future. And so what the parable is saying is that the kingdom of God, in terms of its final manifestation, has not yet arrived and will not arrive in Jerusalem when Jesus enters it. And what Jesus then does in this parable, and this is significant, is that he now instructs them. Not only does he correct their mistaken notion about the final manifestation of the kingdom, but he now instructs his followers in terms of how they should live in the interim period between his ascension to heaven and his return. In that period, Jesus is going to use this parable and say, this is how you should live. And what he will say to them, essentially, is that they must live as faithful stewards of his. They must live in faithful service to him. So he makes this point by beginning with this noble man, this man of high rank and influence and power and wealth. He decides to travel to a distant country in order to receive the appointment to reign over a kingdom, and then he will return. But before he departs, he calls his servants, and he gives each of them, there are ten of them, he gives each of them a minor. In verse 13, so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minors, and says to them, do business until I come. Each of them receive a minor. Now, a minor was less than a talent. A talent, as you have it in Matthew 25, if we had to calculate that, it would probably equate to 20 years of working, a salary that would amount to 20 years of salary for an ordinary laborer. A minor, however, referred to three months' salary. So comparatively, a minor and a talent, a minor was far less than a talent. And each of these receive a talent. This one gives this talent, we call it this minor, we call it a pound, and gives each of these and says, do business until I come. The question before us, and one of several questions regarding this parable is, what does the minor refer to? What is this minor that this nobleman gives to each of his ten servants? Some, when they interpret the minor, see it as similar or the same as the talent in Matthew 25. That is, the talent in Matthew 25 refers to the gifts and the abilities and the resources that Christ grants to his people. And so the minor is seen here as 
the gifts, the talents, the resources that Christ has invested in his people that are to be used for him while he's away, before he returns. Now, I do not have any argument with that interpretation, that the minor and the talent refer to gifts, resources, abilities that are given by the Lord for us to use to serve him. I think that is certainly true. But I think that when you look at this parable and you notice the details, whereas in Matthew 25, the Lord gives to his servants five talents, to another he gives two, and another he gives one. Here, he gives one minor to each of his servants. Now, one of the one of the rules of interpretation in terms of parables is that you must not take all of the details and press them. You must not try to read into every detail in the parables, although otherwise you're going to end up with some bizarre interpretations. But it is significant that each of them receives one minor. And I believe that because of this, we ought not to conflate the meaning of the talents and the minor because here the minor refers not solely to the gifts, abilities, and talents that we receive, but importantly, it signifies the single gift of the gospel that has been entrusted. The minor then that is given represents the gift of the gospel that Jesus entrusts to each of his servants that they are to do business in the gospel until he returns. That's the first thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted to his servants, the gift of the gospel, and they are to serve him faithfully. But the parable also stresses a second and important point. It is this, that during the interim, during the absence of the Lord, at least physically, that during this interim period, the ungodly will oppose the reign of Christ. They will oppose the kingship of Christ, but his kingship is forever guaranteed. So Jesus tells this parable, the rich, this, this, this master, this ruler, this nobleman, he imparts a minor to each of his servants and he goes away. But in verse 14 we are told, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to rule, to reign over us. He journeys to the far country. And when he gets there, he finds that a delegation of citizens from his home country have also arrived. And they are bent on petitioning the king who will grant this nobleman kingship. They are bent on petitioning this king not to appoint this nobleman, their lord, to be their king. They will do everything to dent his prospect in becoming king. They say, we will not have this man to rule over us. We will not have this one to rule over us. And the text clearly states in verse 14 that the reason for their opposition is because of hatred, because they hated him. And the verb there is in the, the, the tense that signifies an ongoing 
situation. And so the imperfect that is used here refers to something that continues onward without necessarily telling you when it ended. And it was because they hated him, but were continually hating him, that they now opposed his kingship. Commentators, uh, when they come to this parable of the pound, will point to a striking parallel between the parable of the pound and particularly this nobleman who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom and become king. They will tell you that there is a, a striking parallel between our Lord's story of the nobleman and also the ascension of Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, to the throne. Because some 30 years before Jesus told this parable, Herod the Great died. He died in AD 4. And Archelaus, his son, was to inherit the territory of Judah over which King Herod or Herod the Great reigned. And so Archelaus goes to Rome. And he goes to the Roman Emperor Augustus, seeking then to become king over the territory that his father had bequeathed to him. But the Jews dispatched a delegation to Rome to petition the emperor not to make Achilles king. Now, Jesus might have used this story. He might have drawn upon this that was still recent in the memory of his audience. But I want to suggest that our Lord is not using the story of Achilles and the opposition he faced to compare himself to Achilles, but rather to contrast himself. For you see, the Jewish objection to Achilles was justified, for he was a man that was evil, extremely evil, just like his father, Herod the Great. And so the Jews did not want a tyrant over them. Secondly, we know that this opposition, this Jewish opposition to Achilles, partially succeeded because the emperor listened to them and did not appoint Achilles king. He, in fact, gave Achilles a lower title than king and gave him a third of the territory that he wanted. And so the Jews succeeded. What we have here in the story of the nobleman, however, is a contrast to Achilles. Because there is nowhere in this story where any evidence is given that this nobleman was one who abused his power and was unkind or evil to those over whom he ruled. Secondly, we see the difference between this and the story of Achilles because there is no success gained by this delegation of citizens saying we will not have this man to reign over us eventually. In fact, this nobleman receives the title of king. The Gospels teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ faced opposition. Going back to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 2, Simeon there predicted that our Lord Jesus Christ would cause a division. We see the opposition of Jesus first and foremost in Nazareth of Galilee where he grew up. When on the Sabbath he went to the temple and read the scriptures from the scrolls which spoke about him in the Old Testament. And Luke tells us in chapter 4 of Luke and 28 and 30 
It says, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. You see, there was opposition in Nazareth because they believed Jesus had come from a nondescript family, a family of not much regard. His father, or adopted father, was a mere carpenter. And here he was claiming a text that has distinctive messianic overtones. And they're saying, is not this Jesus whom we know? We know his parents, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. Are they not with us? Who does he think he is? And so they tried to kill him. That's part of the opposition. And ultimately we see the opposition to Jesus climaxing at the cross where Jesus is given up by his nation and crucified by the Romans. But we need to recognize that while the leaders of the people who crystallized the opposition to Jesus, while they opposed Jesus, they never had any solid, justifiable grounds for opposing him. In fact, the rulers of the people said that Jesus was demonic. That indeed, he did miracles through the power of Beelzebub. That he was demonic. And yet, ironically... It was the very leaders themselves who opposed Jesus who were under demonic influence. Because in the gospel accounts we know that when our Lord was born, Satan, using Herod, wanted to kill Jesus. So his father had to flee with him to Egypt. We know that Satan persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. And those leaders of the people themselves were part of the larger struggle, that spiritual struggle of Satan against Jesus Christ. They were the ones who were under demonic influence. What the story shows then is that those who opposed Jesus failed. Just as in this instance, those who opposed the nobleman did not succeed in thwarting him from ascending the, the throne, so those who oppose the reign of Christ will not succeed. And this is what our Lord Jesus would have us understand from this parable. Not only has, has he entrusted to his servants the gift of the gospel and we are to be faithful to it, but we ought to know that as we seek to exercise faithful service to the gospel, we are going to encounter opposition to the kingship of Christ. That is what occurred in the ministry and in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that will also occur in our lives as we seek to live faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel. And so the second major argument then of the passage is that during the interim period, the time between the first and second coming of Christ, the ungodly will reject Christ's reign, but his kingship overall is nevertheless guaranteed. But as you read further in the parable, it also teaches a third point. That is, that Christ shall return as king, and he shall reward his faithful servants and judge the unfaithful and the rebellious. And in fact, most of the parable makes this point. 
in verses 15 to 27, we now see the nobleman who has been appointed king returning to his home country. And he comes first with the intent, the express intent, to settle accounts with his servants. There are three groups who are actually called for review. The first group that he will review is, of course, represented by the faithful servants that we find in verses 15 to 19. The scriptures read, And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your miner has earned ten miners. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your miner has earned five miners. And likewise he said to him, You also be over five cities. The first servant comes. The master's been away. He's been given a charge to invest the miner that he has been given. And he comes and presents himself before his master. And he says, I think the language is interesting. He says that your miner has earned ten miners. He didn't say, I have earned ten miners. He says, your miner has earned ten miners. And the Lord looks at him. This is a man who has gained a thousand percent interest on the investment of the miner. And the Lord commends him. In fact, the Lord calls him faithful. The Lord says, well done, good servant, because you were faithful. You see, at the very heart of the passage is a call to faithfulness and service. Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful. His mind has earned a thousand percent. And the Lord says, I will give you charge that is rule over ten cities. This is the first group, the faithful, who are called to review. There's a second faithful man who comes and presents to the Lord his miner, which he says has now earned five miners. His investment produces 500% increase. And he also, therefore, is given a reward by this new king, this appointed king. He's given rule over five cities. We have a second class or group or category of servants that are also under review. And this second class is represented by the unfaithful servant. This man comes... And he's quite different from the other two servants who came earlier. He comes to the master saying, Master, here is your miner, which I have kept away, that is tucked away or hidden, in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere, severe, harsh man. You collect what you, do not, what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. 
So we have this man. He has the same minor that everybody else had. But he, he says, Lord, here it is. And it's only one minor because I know you are a very difficult man. I know you are severe, unloving, unkind. You, you in fact, want blood out of stone. You, you don't invest something, but you want to return on it. So what I did was I was afraid and I hid it because I was afraid to lose it because you're such a difficult man. The master, however, is not convinced by the excuse. In fact, he's rather upset. And he says, I'm going to use your own argument against you. I'm going to use your very language. You know I'm a difficult man, as you claim. And, and of, course, of course, this acknowledgement does not mean that the master thinks himself to be difficult and unkind and severe. In fact, the point of the story is that he is anything but harsh, anything but severe, anything but unkind. Here are two servants who had earned ten miners and five miners on their investment. And he gives them ten cities and five cities. In other words, far more than what they earned or deserved. The reward that they received was not what they had worked for. He grants them more than they ever expected. And so he's a master of great generosity. This man who calls his master severe does not know the character of his master. And so he uses this as his argument. Because you believe that I am severe and I am unkind, and because you know I am looking for an investment, I'm looking for a reward on my investment, the, base, the basic thing, the, the bare minimum that you could have done, he says, is put it in the bank. You didn't have to be smart. You didn't have to think about all kinds of economic schemes. You don't have to be brilliant. All you had to do was to put it in the bank. Let it earn interest. You see, this man who did not produce was not afraid. He was negligent. And so the king, this new king, takes away the miner from him and gives it to the one who had ten. Now those who are part of the story, a crowd in the story, sees this and they are surprised. They said to the master, but this man has ten miners already. And the Lord then outlines an important principle. In verse 26, For I say to you that everyone who has will be, will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Here the, the, the spiritual principle is simply that. Those who are faithful in service to the Lord will enjoy exceedingly great reward, but unfaithfulness and unfaithful servants will eventually lose even the little that they possessed. Now the question, a second question is, who does this servant represent, this unfaithful servant? There's a, there's a, there's a school of thought that says, that this unfaithful servant represents Christians who are unfaithful. They are saved by fire, but their works are burnt up. They'll get to heaven and they'll have no rewards because they did nothing on earth. But they are Christians. I think that there are several factors that militate against this interpretation. So I'm going to argue on two grounds, at least two grounds here, that this man does not represent a believer. First, notice that he describes his master as severe and unkind. I would want to suggest to you 
that anybody, any Christian who knows Jesus Christ can never consider him to be severe, to be harsh, and to be unkind. Our very existence and salvation depends upon a gracious Savior. But perhaps secondly and more tellingly is how Jesus views the servant. Because when our Lord responds to his very lame excuse about being afraid to lose it and therefore hiding it in a handkerchief, the Lord Jesus responds to him. And he says to him, Out of your mouth, or your own mouth in verse 22, I will judge you, wicked servant. Now my second argument is that that is not the language that Jesus used for his people. In fact, the scriptures call believers saints. Not perfect, but saved, sanctified, set apart, holy. Nowhere in the scriptures can you ever find an example of Jesus calling believers wicked. It is the wicked who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What I'm arguing then is that he's not a believer. The question then, who is he? I want to suggest that he represents someone who has some familiarity to the Christian life, who has some connection with the Christian life, and who ostensibly appears to be a Christian, but when he receives the gospel, he does nothing with it. He is therefore what we would call a nominal Christian, someone who attends church, someone who worships, but does not have the root of the matter in him, and therefore he cannot be a witness to the gospel. He cannot use this good news that has been given to him. There is a third group of those who are judged, and that is the rebellious. You notice that the Lord then calls for the enemies who did not want to reign over, want him to reign over them, and they are slain before him. Those who did not want to be with him are permanently removed from him and his presence with eternal destruction. So we have looked at the, the parable of the pound, a parable that calls to faithfulness and tells us first and foremost that God, or the Lord Jesus Christ, has given the gift of the gospel to all of his servants and expects them to be faithful to him in this matter. But while they seek to live out faithful service to the gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ will encounter opposition, but he shall reign as king. Thirdly, that the Lord himself will return and will reward his saints and judge his enemies. Those are the points that we have considered. But one further question remains. What then do we make of this for us here and now, this morning as we live? How do we wait the coming of the Lord? I want to suggest three main concepts that should guide our understanding. First of all, the parable summons us to responsibility. We are called to be faithful servants of Christ. He ascended on high and gave gifts to men. He has given multiple, many gifts to us. Variety of gifts, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, that, that God has given us various gifts, but all of them by one spirit. There are miraculous gifts, which I would argue, but I do not have a time here, that essentially have passed. But there are common gifts, gifts of help and service that continue in the church today. 
Paul in that memorable text in Romans chapter 12 verses 6 and following says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, that is service, let us use it in our serving or ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. These are a variety of gifts. Gifts of speech and of help. Peter, the apostle, joins Paul in saying, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. In 1 Peter 4, 10-11. It means, therefore, that whatever gifts that you have been given, whether to administrate, to help, to encourage, to lead, or to teach, or to organize, whatever gifts you have been given must be used here and now in the interim for the Lord. But the greatest gift that we have received is the gift of the gospel, the gift of the good news of Jesus Christ and salvation that has come in him. This gift, the Apostle Paul viewed as the greatest gift that has been given to him. He says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of servants that one be found faithful, 1 Corinthians 4, 1-2. Christ has given us many gifts. Some of us are able to sing. Some of us are able to teach. Some of us are able to encourage. Some of us have ministries of giving financially and of our substance. Various gifts. But the predominant gift that we have is this good news of Christ. That there is salvation to be found in Him and in Him alone. That sinners have a way out. That God has made a way of escape for sinners. It is in the blood of Jesus Christ who died and paid for our sins. That's the good news. And we are called to believe and to rest upon him for salvation. This good news, this gift, this minor, this pound, this, this message of great and unassailable value has been committed to us. And the Lord Jesus commands us to do business. To do business until he returns. We are to be trading and investing in the gospel. That every Christian is to be a part of the work of the gospel. Jesus says, do business until I come. We are not here directed to do our own business. That is a given. But we are directed to do his business. We are not then to concentrate solely on our own interest, our education or our careers. Nor are we to luxuriate ourselves in pleasure to the neglect of the gospel. You are called upon to do business. And my question to you is, are you engaged in doing business for your king? Are you involved in promoting 
in speaking and witnessing and proclaiming the gospel because you are called to do business. You are called to be laboring, to be working, to promote the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation he's provided. You are to do business for the king. You are to adorn the gospel by how you live. You are to use your substance and your resources to promote Christ. That every believer who has been touched by grace, every Christian who has come to know Christ, everyone who has a hope in glory must on earth be engaged in doing business for our King. My question to you is, are you involved in the Lord's work? This parable calls us to responsibility. The responsibility of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. It is here and now in this life that we make a difference by doing business for him. And may I say this, if you make his business your business, he will make your business his business. But there's something else that you must know, not only must you be involved in serving your king, laboring with all that you have, in promoting the gospel. This parable calls us to submit, not just to do business for the king, but we're called to submit to the king. You need to know that there is in this world, or in the next, no neutrality. You must nail your colors to the mask. You must take a stand, because if you do not take a stand, you have taken a stand. You see, these people were saying, we will not have this one to reign over us. And today, as you live in this world, in this city, in this province, you will see millions who will say the same thing, we will not bow the knees to Christ. But if a man is not for Christ, he's against him. There is no neutrality. You are either for Christ and his reign, or you're against him. The, the parable calls us then to the only sensible act, the only sensible path. That is, we must embrace Christ. You see, whether we acknowledge Christ as king or not, he is king. I don't like songs that say, make Jesus king, because that is impossible. He's already king. The only thing that you and I can do is acknowledge it and do it early. Because then one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. My friends, let me be clear to you that you have a king and his name is Jesus. He's so powerful that not even death can hold him. He broke the bands of death. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he's coming again. He's king. And it means that you must submit your thoughts and your judgments and your actions and your attitudes under the reign of Jesus. That you must live for him. You know why? Because he's a gracious king. He is a loving and kind king. He's the kind of tyrant that you want to rule over you because he tyrannizes you with love. That's the king to serve. Have you bowed to Jesus? Have you confessed him as Lord, not only of the universe, but of your, as your Lord? 
Because this parable tells you that you are not to turn away from him, but to declare him your king. The parable also not only tells us of our sovereignty, therefore of our responsibility and the sovereignty of Christ. The parable reminds us of the hour of accountability. How we live, friends, is not a matter of indifference, but a matter of the most importance, the utmost importance. Because what the parable emphasizes more than anything else is that this king who represents Christ will return, and he will return to judge his saints. For those of us who are Christians and are serving the Lord, there is tremendous news, good news. That Jesus is coming again to reward faithful service. He will not forget your labor of love. You, you may serve the Lord for 50, 60 years, and there is nobody to serenade you. No monument put up in your honor. No Nelson's colonnade for you. In fact, maybe the next generation will not even know of your existence. You may not be celebrated or rewarded in any way in this world for the labor you have done for Christ. But God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. That he sees even the very glass of cold water, something as inconsequential as that. He takes note of that. And therefore the Apostle Paul could say to the believers, he says to them, Therefore, beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain. You feel discouraged this morning in service? You feel like quitting? Your heavenly Father takes note. And one day when Christ returns, he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your rule. Rule over these. Rule over 10 cities. Rule over 20 cities. Rule. What it means is that when Christ comes, not only will he give us a reward, but the reward is that we shall reign with him. No, we are not saved because of our works. We are saved by grace, but we are judged by our works because it is our works that prove whether we are truly saved or not. Salvation by grace and judgment by works. The Bible teaches us, and this parable reminds us, that indeed the unfaithful and the rebellious will come under divine judgment. You see, the unfaithful man sought to play it safe. And there are those today who try to play it safe. They want to be close to Christianity, but not too close. They want to be familiar with the gospel, but not too familiar. They want some identification with Christ, but they don't want to go all the way in. They're playing it safe. But listen, when it comes to spiritual matters, playing it safe is the wrong choice. Now, if you're investing and you know they're getting older, you've got to make sure that you take some protective action of your investment. Play it safe. But when it comes to spiritual things and Christ, you are not only called 
to serve him, you are called to take risk for your king. You are to submit to your king, you are to take risk for him. You see, it is in seeking to save our lives that we lose them. And it is in losing our lives for his sake that we gain them. And I ask you this afternoon, are you seeking to play it safe? Do you just want a sprinkling of religion? Do you want simply a little of good deeds to adorn your life? Or do you want to go all the way in? And I'm going to encourage you to go all the way in. I'm going to encourage you to embrace Christ fully. To commit completely to him. To take risk for him. That even when men rise up against you and when they criticize you and oppose you, you are still standing for Christ because that and that alone is what Christ will see. Don't play it safe. Take the risk of opposing the world and siding with Christ. Declare yourself to be one who is a follower of Jesus. Turn from sin, embrace him, and commit your life to serving him. Find something in a local church to do for Christ, to promote the gospel. You know, when I see the statistics, I am often bemused. That in a church, an ordinary church, 10% do all the heavy lifting. And 90% cannot be found. May God cause that that statistic to be turned around. That is 90% who are doing the heavy lifting and 10% who cannot be found. Find something to do before Christ comes for his glory within the body of Christ. Serve him with all your heart and serve the gospel. Serve your king. Submit to your king and take risks in identifying with your king and investing in his cause. And it shall pay a great dividend when he owns you when he comes as one of his own. The parable of the pound calls us to faithfulness in serving Jesus Christ in his gospel.